3: The cool, Avenue Podcast. I'm Steve Cipher, and I'm joined by Lucas Vlahos, Ken Levin, and Thomas Anderson. How's everybody doing this week? Good.
0: I'm doing well. How are you doing?
3: Good. Um, and things are going to get better because today is the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, so every day from here on in is going to get longer, so that's nice. And since it's the shortest day of the year, I figure we should do Promote Extend Trade with the shortest players in professional sports. Nice. Okay. Oh, yeah. So who are we going to promote Extend Trade of this list? First up is Eddie Goodell, who was a pinch hitter for the St. Louis Browns, and he was three seven. Next, we have Muggsy Bogues, who was a point guard mainly for the Charlotte Hornets, and he was five three. And finally, we have definitely the guy with the best nickname. We have Jack Soupy Shapiro, <laughs> who is a defenseman who is five foot one, And he played exactly one game for the NFL um, with the Staten Island Stapletons, which is apparently a team that existed for a couple of years right before the Depression. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And they played basically a couple of blocks from where the Staten Island Yankees. Used to play. R. I. P. Uh, I
1: find I just find that there's like some uh, poetic, not justice, but perfection to the fact that the Hornets have the shortest point guard of all time. It's just <laughs> Garbo <laughs> team. Perfect.
0: I am promoting him though because <laughs> at five foot three to play. Officially, 889 NBA games and averaged 10 points a game in three seasons. That's right. wild. That like is
1: nuts.
3: Like, is he could be, like, the the equivalent of, like, the baseball hole of very good kind of guy.
0: Yeah, he's like he was, like, a good
3: player. Like, he, he wasn't,
0: like, a superstar or anything, but he could play. And at 5'3", to be able to play at all? That's wild. God,
1: Just his, like, his DRPM must have been horrifically bad.
0: Oh, yeah. Can no- you
1: imagine trying to play that dude in a playoff series? It would have been a disaster every 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 possession down the other team would have switched until they had one guy on him and then just got straight to the basket.
3: I don't know what any of that means, but he was in space jam, so that means huh. that he was really good, and aliens from you know other galaxies wanted to take his power. Oh so. was he better They, they deemed that his talent was enough
1: to <laughs> right exactly exactly. That's more than any of us can say, probably. <laughs> I
3: yeah, don't know about no. you guys, but I, I am talent, you know, less. Uh huh. So.
1: Uh-huh. No aliens have shown up in your backyard looking <laughs> to take your talent? No,
3: yes. no, no. I've been I've been begging for them to. <laughs> Interesting. Maybe that happened when I was like a little baby, because that would explain a lot of things. <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe you, they already
1: took your talent. In right. That's, I, yeah. Oh, that makes sense.
3: hmm. I like that story. I'm going to stick yeah. with that.
1: Uh, I'll agree with promoting him, and I'll uh, extend Soupy just for the nickname.
3: You're not extending Eddie Goodell? How can that you not extend Goodell. Eddie Goodell? Yeah. I'm extending Eddie Goodell.
1: Who's the novelty and the best I, one. I'm sorry, is his nickname Soupy? <laughs> no, so. it isn't.
0: Good old
3: Soupy Goodell. Yep. <laughs> well, what,
1: what do you have to do to get the nickname
3: Soupy? <laughs> That's a good question. And is really it like is not... super,
1: like Superman? Probably not. I don't think Superman existed yet, so
3: Maybe Superman was based off of Super Shapiro. Uh press X to doubt. Yeah, X is probably getting pressed a lot. Yeah. Eddie Goodell is like the he would be an unstoppable if he if he pursued his baseball career, he would basically be an unstoppable player. He would probably, yeah. yeah, like, he would be one of the greatest of all time. Only a guy like Greg Maddox would be able to strike him out.
1: Strike zone, very small.
3: Yeah. But his nickname isn't Soupy, so, I mean, I I'm guess you
1: st- I'm sticking with Soupy, you know. <laughs> I guess so you I'm, are right. I'm holding my ground here.
3: There's a lot of Shapiros out there. Soupy is definitely the best. Agreed.
1: Yep. So I, on the topic of a Shapiro, I was watching Moneyball again yesterday with with, with my friend, and I was trying to explain to her uh, the sabermetric revolution and all that. That's not the point. D- they pronounce Mark Shapiro. Mark Shapiro's name Shapiro. Is that how it's pronounced?
3: I I always thought he was not. a Shapiro
1: like all the other Shapiros I know.
3: Me too. Yeah. I was
1: very confused.
3: Shapiro, Shapiro. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe he was on a on a podcast with the Jeff Ostro for a while, and he just said, eh, I don't care how people are going to pronounce my name anymore. And <laughs> you go with it. I'm just going <laughs> to trade them away anyway. It happens. Yep. Yep. Well, um, we have some roster news this week, uh, which is actually a lot of roster, a flurry of moves for the middle of December. A relative flurry. Yes, the Mets lost a guy, and they gained a couple of guys. So in order to complete the Todd Frazier trade from last August, the Mets sent right-handed reliever Ryder Ryan to Texas. And last time the Mets sent a guy named Ryan to Texas, the Mets seriously lost that trade. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully this thing here is a little less.
1: Going to go out on a limb and say that will not happen this
3: time. I would hope so. But you know what? You never know. Um... That, that Ryan was definitely a late bloomer, and this Ryan is something of a late bloomer. Uh, would and, have to be. Yeah. yeah, and I will definitely say there is, there is some talent disparity, 100%, but you never know. And honestly, though, even giving up anything for 14 games of Todd Frazier is like an overpay.
0: Yeah, I was a little worried it was going to be worse. Like, if you're going to lose someone, I mean, all right, it's, it's Ryder Ryan. Like, that was kind of my reaction. I was like, okay. Still like,
1: begs the question of why trade anything for yes, Todd Frazier. Exactly. Oh yes,
0: I mean, it's not a good thing. But this isn't this wasn't Sandy's or Steve Cohen's decision, yeah, so they it's, gotta it's, they gotta uh, make the best. Of it,
3: so among the last um, Wilponian efforts, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at, at his core, I guess Ryder Ryan has all the tools and theory to succeed. Fastball sits in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Could hit like 97. It's very straight, so that's not good, but he can command it pretty well. The slider occasionally, like, flashes an average or above average pitch, and then the changeup is kind of lagging way behind those other two. So he's basically a fastball slider guy, but guys like that can improve in a hurry, you know, when you teach them a new grip or a little mechanical tweak or anything like that, so. Yeah, like, we. Yeah, he's not impressive, not too impressive, but not a guy I'd want to trade <laughs> for uh, Todd Frazier willingly. For 14 games, excuse me, of Todd Frazier willingly.
1: But it is what it is. Just such a strange move.
3: Yeah, that whole... It's almost like whole, there was no thought process there. That whole trade deadline was, I don't know what the hell's going on. That whole trade deadline was, like...
0: I'm about to not have a job soon. Who who could I bring in? Like, it's just like, I don't know.
3: It was so weird. But it wasn't even anybody that could preserve you a (laughs) job. No, it wasn't. No, no, it was like, um, J.P. Riccardi's, like, Buddy's Kid. Um, well Toffee. Yeah, all stuff like that. Weird. It's not... It's, like, in 2004, whatever it was, 2005, I think, I think 2004, when the Expos, like, in their final season, and, and they just basically traded the entire farm because they knew that they were leaving Montreal and nobody was going to have a job the next year. Um, and, you know, that terrible, terrible trade where they, like, got rid of, like, that, Josh, that's John how you that's how Bartolo you wind C- up trading, uh, uh, Grady Cologne? Sizemore, Cliff right. Lee,
1: and Brandon Phillips for Bartolo Colon.
3: Right. And, like, at least if, if you're going for it, like, okay, you're getting a solid guy in return. So, like, okay, at least you're going for it. Like, this, these trades, it was just like, okay, you're getting Robinson Chirinos and, and so, Todd okay, Frazier. Yeah. Like, <laughs> okay.
1: That has to be up there as one of the... Like, highest total war involved in a single trade of all time. <laughs> Between, like, Cologne Probably. was very good. Cliff Lee, obviously, was a top three-ish pitcher in baseball for half a decade. Grady uh, Sizemore was going to be one of the best outfielders of all time until his everything kind of broke. And Brandon Phillips was good for a while.
0: It's, a, it, it's really a lot of talent being thrown yep, yeah. out of that trade. Like, even Bartolo was good. Like was Yeah, out, of course. Like, mm-hmm.
1: I'm trying to think of another trade where you had that many, like, not just, hey, we got three major leaguers out of it, but no, we got this many good players out of this deal. Maybe the Mark Teixeira one to the Braves? That was, like, Elvis Andrews and Neftali Fleas, Jared Saltalamachia, some other stuff. That was,
0: like, key parts to their World Series team. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah. The Salty never hit there. Yeah. Excluding amount of players, the, the the trade overall in baseball history where the most amount of war was traded definitely is, I guess, the Babe Ruth trade. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that kind of breaks the <laughs> exercise, <Yeah>. doesn't <laughs> it, when you trade
1: an all-time great?
0: Whoops trade a Mount Rushmore baseball player for, like, a check. Money. Cash
1: considerations.
0: Yeah.
1: Hey, guys, that play was really, really good. Uh Uh-huh. I'm sure.
3: (laughs) Well, another guy that's probably going to be an all-time great is um, a left-handed minor leaguer that the Mets just (laughs) signed. (laughs) Wow. Um,
1: Slim there, Steve.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, His name is Cam Op. And for... His sake, I hope his name is like Cameron, and not just Cam, because Cameron Op sounds pretty badass. It's like a uh, Fabian I a Marvel character from like X Force. Like, what if his Cable's... name is Camera? No, no, that would just be as bad. <laughs> camera op. <laughs> and op.
1: And his buddy, uh, cool. uh Boom Guy. <laughs>
3: But yeah, Cam-Op sounds like a, a goofy background Star Wars alien who's just kind of hanging around. Uh-huh. Not so good.
0: Cam-Op works in the cantina.
3: Yeah. He's one of those
1: bounty hunters uh, Darth Vader brings in an Empire.
3: Oh, yeah. That's no, cool. they had cool names at least. Bosk? Bosk is cool. All right. Whatever. Um, I mean, maybe he's maybe the name Bosk is not cool, but Bosk, Bosk is Bosk who's wearing cool. an old Doctor Who costume. Listen... They didn't have Steve Cohen's budget, so what can you do? But I uh, really Cam, love when this podcast becomes um, from Tatooine to. <laughs>
1: hey, hey! If we want to talk for an hour about the Mandalorian finale, I'm all for that. I'll, I'll, I'll go off on the
3: Mandalorian finale. From the out, from from Outer Rim to Inner Core. There. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Mock, He's a 25 year old, five foot ten left hander. With no track record of uh, baseball outside of college and a single season in the Frontier League, so expectations should be understandably low. But he does have an interesting story, at least. So there's that. Uh, he was born in Colorado, and his family moved to London because his dad had a really, really good job at like a famous financial group or lawyer group. I don't know, whatever it is. But obviously, um. The amount of baseball opportunities in London are not as many as the opportunities in the United States. So, you know, he took whatever opportunities he could over there, but the highest level of baseball in England is still pretty low in amateur. So when he was a teenager, he basically went back and forth between England and the US a couple of times. First to go to, you know, some travel teams and baseball camps. And then he came over basically permanently as a uh, junior in high school. So that would be, I guess, 16 or 17. And he attended the Christ School, which is a boarding school in Asheville, North Carolina. And he graduated from there. And he initially, he went to the College of William and Mary. But at that point in time, his dad just recently died from cancer. And, you know, not having his family around and all the normal difficulties of, juggling college academics and college athletics and everything like that. It just didn't work out for him there. But he did get accepted to West Point because his headmaster at his boarding school basically put in a good word for him. You know, he had wanted to go to West Point, obviously. Uh, You know, you don't just magically appear. Yeah, right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I guess I'll go to West
3: Point as a backup. (laughs) His former headmaster at uh, the Christ School put in a good word for him. They got some politician to, you know, expedite his application to West Point. It was some dude named uh, Joe Biden,
0: put in a good <laughs>
3: word for him. So, pretty good.
1: What? Yeah. Friend um, of the podcast, Joe Biden.
3: Yeah, for, yeah, yeah sure. Friend of the podcast.
1: <laughs> we just lost half our view, half our listenership. <laughs> We're down so, to one, guys.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's a walk-on on the West Point baseball team. And he basically ended up uh, pitching all four years that he was there as a cadet. He had a cumulative 411 ERA in 181 and two-thirds innings, most of them out of the bullpen. Peripherals are okay. He allowed 168 hits. He walked 85, and he struck out 181. Um, Wasn't drafted in his senior year, so he pitched with the Evansville Otters in the Frontier League in 2019. And he was pretty solid out of that bullpen. And now he's a Mets player, but again, he just turned 25. No experience really, so you know, uh, hard to hard to tell. A, where his future will take him, and be even where he like he's going to get assigned. Maybe Brooklyn. I don't even know. Having a little so, data would help.
0: Yeah. So this is a cool story, like. I'm I'm cool with signing dudes like this because, like, it's interesting and it's a different way to get talent. But how does Sandy and Jared Porter, a front office of two people, know who that is? Like, I would think that, like, the analytics department would bring him to you. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like, Sandy isn't out here scouting West Point baseball, you know? Like, so, like, I'm just very curious to see how he even ended up – like, well, we probably won't ever know. But, like – When I read the news, I was like, "How do you even end up on the Mets' radar with how small the front office is right now?" You know, like maybe Porter was scouting him in Arizona, and or not him specifically, but like the team was. You know, just it it was just curious to me how he even ended up on the Mets' radar Um, at all in the first place. Well, isn't a lot of the scouting staff still intact? Like Tramuda is still running things, right? But like
3: they're all working uh, remotely, and and scouting activities were very greatly. Her tail this year, but I mean, he pitched in Evansville in 2019, so they would have all still been
0: that's true, yeah.
3: Doing all their stuff because that was, and it's was, it's not like the Mets are shy, you know, picking up indie ball guys.
0: Yeah, it was just interesting.
3: It was like, oh, and and actually, same thing with Arizona. Arizona, I think, has one of the highest rates in Major League Baseball of picking up guys from the Indies.
0: So, I know Porter talked about um, the indie stuff. I can't remember if it was on the actual Sny interview or in a subsequent one, but he was basically like, "Yeah, like we you could find you could find a lot of talent on the indie market if you know what you're looking for and know how to scout it." And that would be nice to see the Mets actually get good guys from there because it helps. Like Rich Hill came back to, from to baseball from that, and a, a bunch of other people have as well.
3: Yeah, he was a, he was a Porter signing back when. Well, not signing, but Porter. Flagged him or whatever when he was back mm-hmm. with the, with the Red Sox. Uh, Daniel Nava is another guy that was in the Indies that Porter kind of discovered, so. He, this is has, my yeah, he, he has a, has a track record, so that's good. And, you know, given that there's the, the only data I could get on Op is that he has a big lead kick and he throws from a high quarter, high three quarter arm slot. So, like, hopefully they know more than I do <laughs> about him. There is literally nothing on the internet about anything that he has done, either at West Point or.
1: Sandy, I'd be like, yeah, someone probably gave him a call. Now that they have an actual GM, I could believe Jared Porter was looking at this dude and like, then got hired and was like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll go grab this guy now.
3: (laughs) I could see that (laughs) the head the headmaster put in another uh, call. (laughs) (laughs) Joe Joe Biden's texting Sandy like, (laughs) hey. You ever heard of the hey, Sandman! <laughs> <laughs> I got a signing for you. I think even funnier than Sandy being called a Sandman would be thinking about Joe Biden trying to text somebody, period.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> a bunch that of malarkey more. right there, Steve. <laughs>
3: hashtag well, malarkey. Hashtag malarkey. Two more guys that the Mets signed this week are probably uh, guys that everyone should be a little bit more familiar with. First is Jerry Blevins, who pitched for the Mets for four years. Jerry. 2015. 2018. And the other guy is Jared Eichhoff, a guy who pitched for the Phillies for a couple years. And ironically or unironically, he was actually at his best when he was pitching against the Mets. So maybe it'll work in the inverse and he will be at his best when he is pitching with the Mets as well. Either way, though, there's no risk. In either one of those signings and if either guy is able to contribute in a meaningful way great and if they're not and they stink you could either send them to Syracuse or just you know release them and and let them be on their way
1: These, these are the kind of gambles I really like to fill out the minor leagues just had some potential got hurt hasn't been healthy for a while like it's more. This is a better thing to fill out your upper minors to me with than generic retread who you just know is bad.
3: Yeah, I mean they both have had major league success, so. At yeah, one point I thought I could. be really good. Yeah, I know he's been injured for like the last two years or so. He so. has
1: nerve damage probably, so like that's not good. But maybe you never know.
3: Mm. Yeah.
0: Syracuse is going to be like thirty-two-year-old dudes. Yeah,
3: that's kind of like it was last year. Just like the year it's always been, in, <laughs> Yeah, in Las Vegas.
0: So, which like I guess like these are more probable to be major leaguers than what they used to sign. So that's fine. It's just it's just so thin in the in AAA that you need to really sign a lot of people. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more of these guys that we talk about up until uh, spring training starts, and even probably after when dudes get released and stuff.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And obviously, one more guy um, that is new to the organization we've started talking about is Jared Porter himself, the new GM. Uh, he got his career started in 2014. He was a player development inter- intern with the Red Sox, uh, first in uh, first in their complex at, at Fort Myers, and then in Boston itself. And then he got a permanent position in 20. 20- 2006 2006, uh, he was a player development assistant a couple of years later he was named coordinator of professional scouting a couple of years after that he was named assistant director of professional scouting and a couple of years after that he was named director of professional scouting uh, he's with red sox until 2016 he left them and went to the cubs uh, he was hired there to be the director of professional scouting and assistant gm assistant uh special assistant to gm Theo Epstein, who he worked with under in Boston. They just spent one year together, and then he was hired by the Diamondbacks to be their senior VP and assistant GM in 2017. And that's what he's been doing since until being hired by the Mets. And basically during his time there, uh, you know, he he supposedly was well-liked and, you know, was really putting an emphasis on combining scouting and analytics And, you know, just basically identifying undervalued assets and being a good executive, (laughs) which is something we have not had too much of late. No,
1: like, I don't know. This is probably the best GM the Mets have had uh, uh, ever. I don't know. I think Catherine
3: did some stuff in the 80s.
1: Yeah, sure. I would say,
0: like, Frank Cashin was probably good.
1: Sure, sure, sure. Um, At least in the last two decades, right? Because, like, o- Omar was Omar. Um, Sandy, as as entertaining and obviously sharp as he is, is not the most modern or, shall we say, imaginative GM. And perhaps, like, he was limited by the Wilpons, but I don't think that description of his style in general is, is inaccurate. Um, Brody was a person who who was GM for a time. Um,
0: No love for Steve Phillips, uh, Lucas? Sure. No. No love for Steve Phillips. No love for Steve Phillips.
1: Yeah. Not a friend of the podcast. I prefer Steve Phillips to Brody probably, but, you know.
3: (laughs) I mean, I prefer, (laughs) I
1: guess. Um, This is all with the caveat, of course, and I know – smarter podcasters and baseball people than me have talked about this a bit over the last couple of weeks, that it's hard to evaluate these first time GMs. Like there's no track record to judge them on. the inner workings of other front offices are somewhat nebulous, right? We don't know exactly what he did at each of these stops, but he checks all the boxes for what you'd want to see from this hire, right? Short of getting Neander, I don't, who, who, they got blocked on. I don't know that you were going to hire anyone better than this.
0: I think given the circumstances, I don't know how they get someone better. Like with having to jump it down from a player, a president of baseball operations to a GM, Right. having to deal with Sandy being around, I'm sure wasn't exactly attractive to a lot of people mm-hmm. having um, just it's December, it's almost Christmas and you don't have, the GM yet, like, it started to get kind of deep there, you know, like, it started to take a while, but I don't know, like, I don't know how he's going to be when he actually runs stuff, but it's hard to be like, oh, he's going to be bad because he just, he he's the type of GM that the Mets would never have gotten under the Wilpons. Like, he would take one look at the Mets and be like, nah, I'm staying Fantastic. in past Yeah, because he knows that it would just, like, mess up his career path. So, I don't yeah, know. This is
3: formerly the place
0: where careers go to die. Exactly. And, like, Now it's a place where careers go to thrive.
1: Go to be born?
0: (laughs) Yeah, like, you know, like... crossed. Like, we just don't know any of it yet, but, I mean...
1: For those of you who enjoy conspiracy theories, too, if, Mm. if the Mets were going to actually wait a year and hire Theo for contractual reasons at his former employer or what have you, this is probably the lieutenant you hire to be GM when you bring him in as... TBO?
3: Mm.
0: I don't think that's necessarily a crazy thought. I like not your to say, I'm not theory. saying that
3: will happen. I, I like your newsletter, and I would like to subscribe. <laughs>
1: well, let me sell you some nutrition supplements, too, while we're at it.
3: Um. I take enough nutrition supplements. I don't need any more. Do you have any essential oils?
1: Yeah, I got some of that uh, in the back.
3: Fish oils. Fish oils
1: are actually good for you. No, no, I got some of that lavender extract out here, you know, that'll, that'll prevent COVID.
3: We got some, we got some
0: real good snake oil.
3: (laughs) Hydroxychloroquine. Well, if you remember from months, months back, according to Satchel Page, he used a secret snake oil, Indian salesman potion to like make him really good. So maybe I will take some of that snake oil.
1: You know, I, I really love and respect Satchel Page as a baseball player. I'm not sure I'm <laughs> going to take his medical advice on, on anything. And I, and I mean that, I mean that with no, say that with no disrespect.
3: <laughs> Very fair point. Satchel Page, MD.
1: But has he delivered a child? Because that, that's the true barometer of whether you get to call yourself a doctor or not. Did Doc Gooden ever deliver a child?
3: I wouldn't put it past Satchel Page to have delivered a child.
1: You know, you make a good point there. <laughs> he, he lived quite the life. <laughs> yeah, You're exactly. Right. Hmm.
3: Doc Gooden, probably less so. But but Satchel Page, yeah, I, I think he might have.
0: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg...
2: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. work prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See
1: website for details. Hey,
3: everybody. I am now joined by award-winning journalist and director, Reed Lindsay. He is a gentleman who's been all over the world. He's been to Haiti, Egypt, Libya, India, Venezuela, Honduras, I'm sure other places as well. And he's definitely seen a lot of things. Uh, he's the director of Charlie and Goliath, a documentary about a former Catholic priest who took on the corporate establishment while running for office in Wyoming in 2014. And most recently, he's based at of Cuba, where he's been producing a series of documentaries highlighting the lives of um, Cuban citizens and, and how U.S. policies impacted their lives and even even our understanding of their lives. So, Reid, how are you?
2: I'm fine, Steve. It's a pleasure to, to be on the program, uh, as I am a, uh, listen, an avid listener.
3: Well, thank you for that. That means a lot. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> So I don't remember exactly what it was that got us talking a couple of years ago, but our interests aligned on a couple of things. Two of them were baseball and Cuba. Uh, the Serie Nacional de Baseball, which is Cuba's highest level of organized ball. It's produced hundreds of medals in international competitions in the last you know, couple of decades. And there's been dozens of all-stars, a bunch of really good players to come out of the country. So before we even start talking about baseball, I feel like Cuba is just a very misunderstood place because of you know, obvious reasons. So is there anything that you'd like to say to our listeners that they might not know or be aware of regarding the country?
2: Well, I guess people, the, the, everything in Cuba, in Cuba, the United States and what the U.S. policy what the US does and its policy is a big deal. Not all people, not all Americans know what's going on in Cuba and what Cuba's doing, but all Cubans know what the US is doing because US policy has really had a huge impact in Cuba in every way. The the US embargo against Cuba or on Cuba is the longest trade embargo in modern history been going on for 60 years. And in essence, the United States government has been at, at, at waging an economic war against Cuba for many, many years. Um, so that has affected every aspect. It affects every aspect of life here. And it, it affects baseball as well. And obviously, Cuba has a unique history and its revolution uh, in addition to this U.S. policy that's sort of still in this Cold War policy towards Cuba. Sort of shapes every part of life. I, that that probably would be the, if I had to say pick one thing to keep in mind about the country, that would be it. Um, and the other thing, maybe the other thing would just be that, um, you know, he, coming to Cuba, it, when, when you're here, everyone I've met who's come to Cuba always say that it wasn't what they expected, and and they they fall in love with it for different reasons. And uh, and that's another thing that I think the impression what what life is really like here is not always represented in the media and uh, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty special
3: place. Mm. All right. So unlike baseball here in the U S the Serie Nacional, it's an internet, it's an amateur competition. It's not a professional league. So besides for the financial side of things for everybody involved, um, how does it being an amateur competition make it different from what people might expect here in the U S with the MLB being a professional league?
2: Well, the thing is, it's whether I think it's debatable whether it's amateur.
3: Well, yeah. Okay.
2: I, I, so when they, when the revolution happened, they said the state basically took over the, the baseball leagues. Of there were a couple in Cuba at the time, and Cuba was before the revolution famous for baseball, and a lot of major league players would come and play. And when they took over, they said, okay, you know, this is not about making money. There are other values here, and baseball shouldn't be played for money and so people the the top players who played at that time would have jobs and they would it was almost like they were given a sabbatical or they would get they would for the season they would play but they would have to keep working even when it wasn't the baseball season but they would be paid a salary essentially from the state to play now it's become more professionalized so the players basically get a salary so you're you're a professional baseball player. That's your job, and you get paid a monthly wage for that. And um, and in the offseason, you keep getting paid that money to train and so on. And and then the players who participate in international competitions, uh, who have gotten gold medals and uh, and silver medals and so on, they get a, a much higher salary. It's a big incentive that they did in recent years to try to stop players from leaving. So they can actually get many times their salary if they have, you know, won a medal in an Olympics. Um, so it's sort of become professionalized, but certainly not like it is in other countries. In the sense that Cuban baseball players earn so little money, it's 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 uh, it's a little hard to believe. But they earn as much as the people in the in the stands, essentially.
3: Mm. So there are 16 teams. Each one represents one of the 16 provinces in the country. And I don't you'd to have to go over all sixteen teams or anything like that, but what would you say are the most successful teams, the most famous ones? What are the teams that you think the listeners should know about?
2: Well, the most famous that Cuba has its version of the Yankees, <laughs> which are hate loved and hated. And it's Havana's team. They're called Industriales. So Industriales is uh is it's, it's a big deal in Havana, and they've definitely They've had a very long history of success, much like the Yankees. Many championships in Cuba. And if you talk to a kid, a, ba- a kid who wants to be a baseball player here, it's usually their dream is to play for Industriales. So that would be the top team. Interestingly, what I found out when I came here is that there was another team. It, when I came here in 2015 to start doing documentaries on baseball, uh, there was only one team in Havana. Every province had its team. But I found out that in previously there had been a second team in Havana. And its name was the Metropolitanos. <laughs> the Mets, they had a Mets, and it was sad here in the because I found a, a, base, a famous baseball journalist here, and he was t- he was a Mets fan. So we we bonded because I was a fan of the Mets in the U.S. He was a Mets fan of the Mets here. Their color unfortunately, is was not orange and blue; it was it was red. But the Mets the Mets were sort of it was they were even worse shaped than 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 the Mets in the U.S. have been in New York traditionally. In the that because. The Industriales would basically cherry pick all their best players. I guess there's some similarities in that. But so the a good player that would start to come up and be doing well with the Mets would end up going to Industriales. So the Mets were they they never really succeeded. They never won a championship. Um, but that the Mets are gone now, and now um, the other teams that historically good teams and it's hard you know the baseball here's not hasn't been as consistent as it is in the major leagues so they're constantly changing formats and, and 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 so it's it's hard to keep and the number of games they play and 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 so it's hard to keep track of things over time but historically you know since things have been sort of how they are the other major teams Santiago de Cuba which is like the Los Angeles of Cuba it's the second biggest city they they have not been good in recent years but historically they were very good Pinar de Rio, which is in the West, you know, which is sort of, it's famous for cigars and it's not far from Havana. It's produced some of the, the best players in human history, like Omar Linares, who maybe is the most famous one, at least in modern history, and some amazing pitchers that have actually um, played in, in, in the U.S. Uh, Pinal de Rio would be one of the top, top teams historically. Um, I would say, uh, just running through the list, I would say those three are sort of the, the three of the big the, – the ones that most stand out to me as historically good teams.
3: Um, so the Cuban national team, one of the most decorated baseball teams in the world. There's multiple Olympic gold medals, World Baseball Cup championships, Pan American Game championships, Caribbean Series championships. The list goes on and on and on. What do you attribute to that kind of success? Because consistently, consistently, consistently for decades, they've just been – Really, really good.
2: Well, Cuba, the baseball in Cuba was very good uh, until the revolution. Uh, there's debate about what happened after, but I, I tend to agree with the, the argument that it got better. They invested a lot in baseball. It became a political issue in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, the baseball in Cuba is, is a, a national pastime, just like it is in the U.S. And in some ways, it's more of a national pastime, because it's very tied to their own independence movement. In the late 19th century, when the Cubans were trying to gain independence from Spain, baseball was seen as a symbol of what it meant to be Cuban. And, um, and so baseball games were actually banned for a time by Spain. It was very much tied into, uh, into their national identity. Um, and so when the revolution occurred, that they, you know, this it, it became a symbol of the revolution. And they, and so they invested a lot. They built a bunch of stadiums. They invested in sort of in youth training. And the players, because of the sort of the Cold War and and everything, the uh, the players um, were safe. They didn't go to the major leagues. There were a lot of players that no one's ever heard of that easily would have been Hall of Famers in the U.S. playing for Major League Baseball. Some legendary players that never won. And, uh, and so that's why they won so many medals. There's a lot of investment and they put, and the government put a great importance on winning, on participating in international competition and, and winning them. More, whereas in the U.S., most people, people care about their own team and the major leagues much more than the Olympics. In Cuba, it's the opposite. And, the, and that's not just the government. People too take great pride when Cuba plays internationally. Um, recently though, the team has not done very well and that's because there's just been an exodus of players in the last, you know, 20 years, but really like the last 10 years, uh, all of the top players leave and, 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 uh, they tend to leave now even before they, be be, even before they become prospects, you know, when they're 15, 14 or
3: younger. That's actually something I wanted to get to. So I'll skip to that. And, in a kind of twisted way, like the embargo and the diplomatic problems between the U.S. and Cuba has kind of preserved the baseball scene there. Because, I mean, if you look to other islands in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, they basically just become feeder systems for MLB teams. They don't really have any real big leagues of their own other than the winter leagues that take place for a couple of weeks. So do you think if the U.S. and Cuba magically repaired the relationship overnight and the embargo is lifted and everything like that, do you think that would be good or bad for just the Cuban baseball establishment? Do you worry that, you know, MLB would come in and just kind of suck the life out of everything like they've done in other places?
2: Yes, I do worry about that, but I don't think there's a choice. And I think it's Cuba, it's their only way. And what was exciting about, you know, Obama changed policy, uh, toward uh toward Cuba in his last two years in office. And that and, and baseball was a was a big part of that. In fact, it was one of the only really tangible major things that happened. The Tampa Bay Rays came and played in a game and Obama was attended, but beyond that symbolic event, uh it allowed Major League Baseball to sign a deal with the Cuban Baseball Federation. Which would have, which was very similar to the deal with Japan, which would have essentially allowed Cuba to maintain some control over its own league and allow it to maintain that sort of sovereignty of its own baseball league. So the deal was set up so that players, you know, after they were 25 or so could go play in in the United States and they'd have to, and the teams would have to pay a fee to get those players. So it was a very strong incentive for young players here to stay because they could still know if they played well in the Cuban league, eventually they could get to play in major league baseball and they wouldn't have to renounce their citizenship the way it is now players actually to sign with a major league team in essence have to renounce their citizenship. And so, um, so they, they, players don't want to leave their hometown. they, Cuban players and the Cuban people would love it if they, if they could play in the major leagues, but also be able to come back to Cuba in the offseason and still compete in international competitions and so on. That would be an ideal world. And that was essentially what was going to happen with this deal. And then when Trump won, he (laughs) canceled the deal. And, uh, and that's where things stand right now. So, uh, the question is, will, you know, in general with Cuba policy, nobody knows uh, I, we are expecting a change with Biden. But we don't know. This is definitely not at the top of his list of priorities, and he's going to get a lot of pressure from certain uh, interest groups like the Cuban Americans in Miami and so on. And so, and 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 we don't know in general his how his policy towards Cuba will change, and we don't know how his policy towards Cuban baseball will change.
3: Um, kind of related to that is the case of Roberto Hernandez, who we shot a documentary on. He signed a contract with the Cleveland Indians. He, lit, he, he looked pretty legit, but he gave up the money that he made, uh, $300,000, and then, of course, whatever future earnings he would have gotten as a major leaguer to go back to Cuba because he was just homesick, and he, he couldn't bear not seeing his family anymore and not being part of his country. Um, his case isn't typical because he gave everything up but his story is not unique because that is basically the story of every player who comes here, who has to defect. So what kind of things do players have to deal with when they do come here from Cuba?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's quite, well, uh, a lot of them, and these stories have been really well documented, have Mm -hmm. risked their lives, you know, getting on rickety boats and, and often getting smuggled by, you know, and and kidnapped by, by uh, scary people. And, um, it's it's uh, there's all sorts of stories. In recent years, that's got, there there aren't so many of those cases because Cuba's opened up a bit and it's easier for people to leave Cuba. Like for example, Roberto, he left legally with his with his father in a plane, and they got on a plane and they went to the Dominican Republic, and and then he. Uh, he he's a pitcher and he and he had a good arm and he signed uh, a deal with the Cleveland Indians and he is the exception and uh, but I would say it is it's it's once players leave um, they are it, it's tricky for them to come back because it's also seen here uh, as sort of an act of betrayal as well uh, especially if they're trying to get to the U S um, primarily because of the U S and that relationship so when Roberto came back he didn't know how he would be treated. By the government, that maybe they would, you know, not let him play here. Um, but, but the opposite happened. They actually, the government has taken a different attitude in recent years, and they've welcomed back players who have played in the minor leagues or in other leagues and have left Cuba and have come back. So things are getting a little better. But I'd say in general, he's very atypical in that he came back. But in general, I found that in, in talking to players here, uh, that it's very hard for the ones who leave. They they, very, they struggle a lot. Um, because of I mean I think that's probably true from Dominican players as well and Japanese players and so on but more so from Cuba because it could be the relationships between the countries make it so much more difficult to stay in communication with your family to visit your family and so on
3: Uh, I want to switch now to the fans Uh, I was a big fan of Anthony Bourdain and his show and one of my favorite episodes that he ever did is when he went to Cuba and him and the late Peter Bjorkman were at an Industriales game in Havana. And it was just chaos outside of the stadium. The fans were surrounding them. They were grilling them about their knowledge. The fans were arguing with each other. And just the level of, of passion was, was off the charts. So for someone who wasn't from Cuba or familiar with it or anything, what would going to a game be like?
2: What you know it's i'm actually in cuba do, doing work that is not related to baseball but the reason i'm here is because of baseball i came to visit the country shortly after obama's um, announced new relations with raul with uh, raul castro and you know in late 2014 and around around that time near the end of the year i went to a game industriales against matanzas and they were both in in this playoff uh hunt I mean they were they were it was toward the end of the regular season and they were both top teams and I was blown away by the atmosphere. It was so exciting um the I, there there are other things that really struck my attention. the manager for is uh for Matanzas is victor Mesa, who's this legendary character. His two sons actually recently signed with the uh Florida Marlins. And he would have been a Hall of Famer if, if he had played in the in the United States. And he is a he's a he's like he's like but as a manager he's like Earl Weaver. And so he's screaming at the players, like screaming at the players in the front of everybody. The pitcher he'd go out instead of taking out the pitcher, he goes out there and just yells. At him. And then the and then the fans he was on the opposite team, so the visiting team that the, the, the Giants fans were screaming at him. And he would stop and then look and point, like wave his finger at one of the fans and get into arguments with them. And it was so cool because uh, it was just to see that interaction. And in general, it's one of the greatest things about baseball here is that since the players make it, they're like working class people. They make as much as anyone else. They're not pretentious. You know, they, don't, they, you know, you, they hang out with people. They, they'll hang out in the parking lot and drink a beer with, with fans who are their friends and family after the game. And the, they know the fans even by their name, and they interact with them. And also, it's demo, it's very democratic. So it's dirt cheap to get in the game; cost four cents. Anybody can afford it. If you don't have it, the it you in anyway. Basically, if you're under, if you're a, a kid or if, or if you have a disability, it's it's free. You go. You, it's 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 totally democratic seating. So you sit wherever you want. Uh, so first come, first serve. You you want to get a great seat, just show up early. And um and 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 the, there's no statistics. Or anything, like, you can't even look up on the board and see what player is what, uh, and, and, and you, there's no Jumbotron or anything like that, and there's, there's not much food, and there's no alcohol, uh, and, and so basically people are just sitting in their seat watching baseball, and they're into it. They're like really into it, and they know, uh, they know about the game, and they know about, uh, uh, they know all the players, and they're in con- and, and there'll be groups of fans, they're like in constant arguments. It's almost like sports radio, like talk radio, but in the fan, in the, in the stands, and there's certain places where people are just in these heated arguments that you think they're on the point of fighting. And, and you go over there and you try, it's hard to follow and try to, and then they're talking about like which player is better. Basically, <laughs> they're having these like sports radio debates. It's, it's, uh, and then there's these congas, because there's no like, there's no like thing that you can try to get people riled up, like, you know, uh, uh, there's no sort of loudspeaker trying to get people into it because they're already into it. So you, it's all very spontaneous and authentic. So you have like a conga, which is a, basically a bunch of guys with drums, and, and and they're just like and they and they're they're just like the home team will have one, and they do it when their team's batting, and they're just like they're and 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 uh, and then they have mascots, and the mascots are also not controlled by the team. Like it's just fans that okay, I'm the mascot. Like, and one team I was following, Isla de la Juventud, there was this older gentleman who was who was very humble, and he was also drunk a lot of the time. But he was the pirate, so he dressed up as this pirate, and he would go around and just like get everyone really excited. And people, I talked to the manager, and I thought he might be embarrassed of the pirate because he's a little drunk, and and people sort of make fun of him, and he goes around in this pirate outfit, and he's yelling at, he's yelling constantly at the opposing team. And I thought, and I asked the manager, "What do you think of the pirate?" And I thought he'd be embarrassed. He said, "You know what?" I was just telling the players the other day, the pirate embodies the spirit of our team. He's an underdog, you know, he's, he's a humble person, but he fights, he fights to the end. It was really cool. Anyway, it's just, I talked to an American once here who was at a game. I didn't know him. I just was interviewing because there's a section where foreigners sit and I, and, and he was from like Kansas or something. And I, and I asked him what he thought about it. He said, this is pure, it's pure baseball. And he just was like, so happy to be there and actually all baseball fans I've met and even non-baseball fans who have gone to a game they just they can't get over it they just say this is so much fun it's amazing I I haven't been to games in the DR Puerto Rico so maybe it's similar but I do think certain elements of it like the sort of very democratic and, and and uh I don't know very accessible aspect of it might might be different in Cuba all
3: right well finally and I ask this to everybody at the interview you are craving a pizza and you have a genie that could magically grant your wish. Where are you ordering your pizza from? <laughs>
2: oh, that's a good question. Well, I would probably get a, a Familia pizza. Mm. You know, I guess it's a chain now, but when I used to be going to New York and visit my dad, I always go to Familia pizza. And I, there was just one that I knew or maybe Ray's. I don't know. Any New York pizzas I'd be happy with.
3: <laughs> and since actually, since you're such a well-traveled guy, just in general, what is your
2: favorite um, like cuisine? Uh, Mexican food. And mm-hmm. I would say, if anyone's thinking about going to Cuba, don't come here for the food because it's not known <laughs> for its food. Limited stuff. So they have nice. I'm not. I don't want to diss Cuba hard on like on the food because they do have nice restaurants and, and and some good dishes and so on. But it's definitely not the not the best country for for its cuisine. Mm.
3: Right, read. Thank you so much. Is there anything you're working on right now that you'd like to plug?
2: Well, um I am oh, can I say one more thing about Cuba baseball? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, because it's something I always think about with the Mets. And actually, it's funny when Steve Cohen uh, you know, which is became the the owner and, and we're all so excited about that because things seem to be changing. It's almost weird. <laughs> Everything seems to be positive in the news these days. <laughs> but yet. he came in and he said, you know, my mission is not to make money; it's to make millions of people happy, right? And what, what, what? One thing in all of these, you know, the, the labor disputes—it's the unions, the players against the owners, right? And then, uh, and, and so, and, and then that's the dynamic. It's a business, and you have workers and you have owners, right? Just like any business, I guess, or, or a big company. And then, and so you have these labor disputes, and then a player wants a bigger contract, and then Albert Pujols. He leaves, uh, St. Louis to go for the Angels, even though St. Louis is, why would you leave St. Louis? I mean, they love you there. You want a little series there because they offered him more money, right? And, and, and so, uh, he's not going to be loyal to St. Louis because the owners aren't going to be loyal to him, right? So the, the owners aren't loyal to the players. The players, why should they be loyal to the owners? Mm-hmm. But wait a second. There's a there's a third party to this whole thing. It's the fans. We're loyal no matter what, right? If you're a Mets fan, You can't it's not like a – it's sure you can call it a business, but it's not really a business because if they're not serving us well, we're not gonna suddenly become Yankees fans. Right? So we're sort of stuck. So so but we're we're not taking in we're not taking into account an equation. So when people look at Cuban baseball, they say, It's so unfair, why do the players make such little money? This is terrible, and so on and so forth. It's true, and I understand that, and that's why the players leave, obviously. But at the same time, Cuban baseball is essentially set up for the fans. The priority is on the fans, not on the players. You could say maybe it's on the owners in the sense that the owners, the state, and they use the baseball sometimes for political ends. Okay, that's that's a fair statement. But really, the fans are prioritized, and that's why players don't move around a lot from team to team. You grow up in a certain province, you play for that province, and you play it there your whole life. So I think that. I, that's a lesson I learned in Cuba, and I know, like, obviously the U.S. is going to become mean, socialist, but I, you know, it, I, I, I'm i always amazed at these discussions in the U.S. about the state of baseball and in business and and this player's worth this much and so on and so forth, and and sort of left out of that equation always is are are the fans. And that's why I feel like, you know, like when the Mets got rid of Daniel Murphy, I was so angry. I was furious. I Like, I was sick to my stomach, and I couldn't believe some fans talking about it like, oh, well, you know – well, this player can do slightly better, and I'm, you know, whatever. The, the time was Neil Walker supposedly was on paper is just as good and it was cheaper. And so uh, sometimes we talk about that being like, oh, that's a good thing, right? And I'm like, what? Now you're entering in the mind of the, the owner. You're trying to, you're sort of uh, taking his perspective. Why? I, I'd like to see Daniel, why couldn't Daniel Murphy have played more years with the Mets? Because he came up with the Mets, and you grow an attachment to the players. And I feel like I have loyalty toward my team. And I also, you grow loyalty to the fan, to the players, but unfortunately the owners and players don't really show that loyalty back. Not sometimes. Right. But, but you usually not. Anyway, that just that's my me on my soapbox. Sorry. But I, uh, I felt like I needed to say that. That's
3: Definitely worth saying. All right. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Reed Lindsay, you definitely should check his stuff out, especially if you have, um, political bend in a certain way, his stuff will definitely appeal to you. Reid, thank you so much for jumping on.
2: Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Just if you want to, the latest thing we did is not baseball. It's called The War in Cuba. It's about the impact of US policy under the Trump administration towards Cuba. And if you type in The War in Cuba in YouTube, it'll come up. It's a three-part series. Uh, and, uh, and that's the latest we've got. So if you want to check that out, non, non-base, there is a baseball story in the first episode that you'll see. There's a baseball player is featured. So if you want to check that out, it's there.
3: Reid, thank you so much. Thank you. Z. All right. Uh, we are going to wrap things up here. Um, we're just going to reconfigure our new segment just a little bit and we're going to change the title of it because it's just too good of a title and we're going to change it to Old Will Ponnery. And that I wish pump. we had a, I wish we had like a tech guy that could, uh, you know, redub the the famous recording from the Hindenburg. and oh, slip, they will. Slip the Will <laughs> Ponary in there.
1: Someone Photoshopped Jeff's fit, that Jeff sneer picture onto yeah. the front of the Hindenburg. <laughs> Talented pod- podcast listener, please do this for us.
3: Yeah, that would be nice. Free we'll labor. give you a
1: shout out if you make this Photoshop and like tweet it at the pod
3: or something. Hmm. But basically, you know, same concept, the most vilpani stories of the news and everything. So I think this week, it, it goes to Mike Pence or, or whoever is the decision maker of the Trump administration for declaring that the official name of recruits for the Space Force are going to be called Guardians. <laughs> so it's soldiers protecting the land, sailors protecting the sea, Amarin protecting the skies... Marines, Marines doing whatever they do. <laughs> and then we have Guardians protecting a galaxy.
1: Guardians of the local space around the planet. Doesn't have quite the same ring to it.
3: Guardians no. of the atmosphere. Uh, well, no, they're, they're out of the atmosphere. They better not be not in the sure. atmosphere.
1: Well, it depends. Like, space technically d- starts within the atmosphere. So mm. Okay. We could really get to get into semantics about uh, what what is space.
3: The final yeah. frontier.
1: Oh, yeah, there it is. I'm so glad that that the space force continues to be a priority even the even in the waiting days of the administration, though. You know, like I, I know there's a lot of other important issues that require time, but I, I truly appreciate that uh, uh, building up another military institution to defend the. Vital new front of space, uh, is, is still happening. Well, uh, not getting anything, let anything pesky like, uh, COVID or, uh, civil unrest or economic depression or any of those things get in the way.
3: Well, that is why Mike Pence and or whoever else is the, uh, the will pond of the week.
1: Very, very so much, much uh, overpaying for proven closer TM while ignoring the 17 other holes on the roster energy here.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: exactly.
0: Can we call relievers guardians of the leads? <laughs> <laughs> sure. You Makes know, sense. that has a
1: better ring to it than the Space Force anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seriously, you think they'd have, like, someone who could do some better branding than that. Like did they yes, like man. test this in any pilot groups? No pun intended.
3: Probably not. I assume that that became a thing because Trump had like a really realistic dream one night. So just like a very uh-huh. realistic dream.
0: <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm he's not, just a big Destiny cool? fan. <laughs> where if video game people would know that in Destiny you're a you, you guard you, you're a you're called a guardian. And you mm-hmm. live in space, and you protect the earth. So
1: tr- Trump plays so- Destiny confirmed. Yeah, or at least Mike Pence does.
0: Because and and Destiny like quote tweeted the uh, the announcement, and they were like, well, uh, "Sounds familiar." Like the <laughs> official account was like, uh.
1: <laughs> you know, you know what? I actually bet like one of the random Yahoo aides plays Destiny <laughs> and just yoinked it, thinking no one would notice because they're probably an idiot. And that's how we got uh, Guardians for the Space Force.
3: Now I'm picturing like. Trump playing an online first person shooter, just like saying terrible racist things to everybody. So a normal mic.
1: person playing <laughs> right, an exactly.
3: online first person shooter. <laughs> exactly. But just as Donald Trump. Huh.
1: There are actually some great videos of people with like soundboards of various individuals going to play games. Pretty sure there's like a Donald Trump plays CODs or plays Overwatch, you know, that's uh, entertaining.
3: Well at least something's entertaining with Donald Trump.
1: Yeah. We continue to just hemorrhage viewers here, you know? We're losing the Heartland.
3: Oh, damn it. I don't think we had much of the Heartland to begin with. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if anyone has any questions, comments, whatever, you could send us an email at our email address from complex at gmail at com. You could follow us on Twitter and shoot us questions there. I am at Steve Seiper. Lucas is at El Elvlahos343. Ken is at Ken1191. And Thomas is at said Mets season at ZN. Subscribe to the podcast or get your podcast from. Rate and review it. And of course, thank you for listening. And we will be back next week. And until then, love the Mets. Love the Mets.